1: Food is among our most basic human needs. 200 years ago in the U.S., local was a way everyone ate, and farming was a primary profession. However, industrial agriculture has distanced us from the hands that grow and process our food. If you are over 60, you've seen in your lifetime your food shifting from local to industrial. Vicki Robin did what she called a 10-mile eating experiment. What were some of the hardships she discovered and what surprises did she encounter by eating for one month only foods grown within a 10-mile radius of her home? We'll be exploring this experiment and other issues about what she calls relational eating with our guest, Vicki Robin. Vicki Robin has been a pioneer at the forefront of the sustainable living movement She is co-author of Your Money or Your Life and author of Blessing the Hands That Feed Us, What Eating Closer to Home Can Teach Us About Food, Community, and Our Place on Earth. Join us for the next hour as we explore lessons from a simple experiment of eating closer to home with our guest, Vicki Robin. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Vicky, welcome. It's great to be with you, Justine. It's so great to have you. Well, let's let's just describe a little bit about how you came
2: to this 10-mile experiment. Right. Well, you know, as you know, I've been a sustainability maven for years and I'm I've always been interested in given the data, given the data about climate change and resource depletion and you know, you know the whole list. How do we align our personal lives with that data? Without undue deprivation, misery, and anger, you know, all the things that can come from arranging your life around something that you don't enjoy or like. How can we have a wonderful life and live within the means of the earth? My former book, Your Money, or Your Life, came right out of that, that question of how much is enough. And yet there was still one form of consumption that I never looked at which was my predilection for cheap easy food because my frugality values sent me into the cheap food thing and i thought you know i i had all these attitudes of of activists you know i'll sleep when i die <laughs> <laughs> i know, I know. you've gone at it pretty hard yeah Nikki. and so uh, and so i had this opportunity i became a, aware i mean there's a lot of story to this but i became aware of some data around the food system, not just on Whidbey Island, but I mean the fact that I live on an island, serviced by a ferry to the south and a bridge in the north. And Whidbey is located in where? Puget Sound,
1: and and that's in, in state the, uh, of Washington, 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 right?
2: Northwest of the U.S. where We have
1: listeners around the world. So exactly.
2: So it's not far from Seattle, Washington. Yeah. So uh, it became very interesting to me that. On average, our grocery stores have three days of food on the shelves, that they are the endpoint of an industrial food system. Does that mean that,
1: like, if no food was brought into the store within three days, the
2: shelves would be emptied? Pretty much. And you've seen this. You know, you've seen runs on food when there's a disaster, and you see on television these pictures of people racing to get the last roll of toilet paper. So it means that if these stores are not always serviced by the trucks that come in in the early morning, we've seen this. We just don't think about it. We think the food – you ask a kid, where's food? And they say in the grocery store. I was just told recently that how kids in New York know that it's dinner time is the doorbell rings. (laughs) (laughs) So we are really, really disconnected from our food at our peril um, in terms of sustainability, in terms of just basically provisioning our homes. I also learned that uh, the average age of a farmer in the United States is close to 60, that there are five farmers over 75 for every one farmer under 25. So it means... Now, why is this an important statistic for us to know? Because farmers grow our food. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And, you know, there's this value. I mean, we're talking about... Local food today, but you know, the value of artisanal, whole, healthy, organic. You know, there's a whole value now. People are becoming aware that, like the industrial food system, even though it provides us with bountiful food or bountiful calories, it may not be the best for our health. We start to wonder about obesity. We're starting to wonder about all the, oh, the cancer. Is that from the chemicals in our food? So people are starting to say, even though it's cheap, I want to unhook. And so there's this idea of local food. It's sort of like they say local is a new organic. Everybody thinks, you know, it's sort of a value. And I decided from a point of view of sustainability, I wanted to test this value out. I wanted to see what would it be like to really live it, not just go to the farmer's market and socialize and buy three beets and think you're doing something. How resilient is our food system? I asked a farmer friend of mine uh, whether we could survive on Whidbey Island, which is semi-rural island with a few cities up and down the main highway. So
1: what's the population of Whidbey?
2: 65,000. Okay. And it's 45 miles long. So it's got various cultures up and down the island. But 65,000 people and you go and there's rolling farmland and it seems like things are growing. Uh, And I asked her if we could survive on Whidbey Island and what we grow. And she did a calculation of number of acres of agricultural land, population, calories per day, things that grow well there. And she said we could survive for approximately two weeks in August. (laughs) <laughs> so so that <laughs> Well there there are there are fifty other weeks of the year. <laughs> uh-huh, exactly. So these are all things that had my attention. So I thought I'm one of these people that you know I call sustainability an extreme sport. I like to test things out in my own life. You know, not not to mouth off about it or have good ideas about it, but to really run the experiment. So I decided I would I actually had another farmer friend who said she was. She'd watched the takeoff on Morgan Spurlock's Super Size Me. Remember that thirty yes, days of eating McDonald's, and she said to her husband, "We should do a Super Veggie Me." Uh We should see if if we could actually survive for a month on what grows in our garden, you know, that we sell at the farmer's market. he said, no way, Jose, I'm not doing that. And she said, I'm not doing it either. So she went out looking for somebody else (laughs) who would actually run the (laughs) experiment. you were the victim. (laughs) I wasn't exactly the victim. It's I had done all sorts of diets, of course. You know, we're all yo-yo dieting, you know, gain weight and lose weight. I know that one. And then there's sort of the lateral yo-yo, like eat meat, don't eat meat. (laughs) Right. You know, fat is good for you, fat is bad for you. Weston Price, I should eat organs. You know, no, vegan diet, I should only eat yams. So it's like, it's, it's crazy making. So, but I'd done that and I was willing to give this a try. You know, let's just, let's try another constraint. So we spent the month of August looking for food. You know, I knew that I would get food from her garden, but I realized, no, I mean, there's no grain. There's no beans. So there's
1: no grain on the island or within that 10 mile. Right. There was so, grain
2: 25 miles north, but that was no bread, no cookies, no crackers, no <laughs> pasta, no nuts, no... This was hard, wasn't it? This was especially, you write about no crackers. That was especially hard. Yeah, I realized uh, that I'm a crunchaholic, you know, that that having to bite down on, that's... that. Was important for my jaws, and I think it's. I read a, a psychologist who distinguished those crunchaholics and sweetaholics. You know, crunchaholics need crunch because they take out their frustrations on the crunch, and sweetaholics need chocolate because they're sad, you
1: know? I really identified with your (laughs) crunchaholic. I'm a -a crunchaholic too,
2: definitely, not a -a sweetaholic. Yeah, yeah. so, um, and I had four exotics. I decided there's four things I wasn't going to live without. And when I ask audiences, what do you think it was? The first thing they say is chocolate, but I'm not a -a sweetaholic, so it wasn't chocolate. It was oil, caffeine, salt, and lemons, so I decided those were my four exotics. So these were outside your parameters. My 10 miles, yes, exactly. So you gave yourself four exotics, and salt would be very important. Yes. But the cool thing is, in, ter- in terms of food system transformation, the interesting thing is salt is now produced on Whidbey Island. So watching this infill, it's very exciting, watching sort of the tide come in from, from outsourcing all of our food to the industrial system and start watching communities like mine Improvisationally, not you know some you know dicta from on high, but improvisationally, people are starting to discover niches in the marketplace and things that grow well. And we have wonderful salt water. On. So you're you're having people who are harvesting the salt and then offering it for in in a local market. Well, it's a it's a high end product now. It's yes. Admiralty salt, but yeah. anyway. So those were my four exotics. And so I was able, Tricia and I, my farmer and I, agreed that I could look within the perimeter of where her relationship of her farm and my house in that 10-mile radius for the other things I needed. And one was I needed milk for my tea. You know, this is an essential (laughs) thing. And, And so I just called a friend who I knew had goats, and I said, can I buy some milk? She said, no, I can't sell you milk because selling raw milk to your neighbors is illegal. So that was one of my first, like, Uh oh! There's. I thought that you know, milk. How could it be milk? Right now, you're getting into another layer of the issues that we're facing. Exactly. So I found the milk. I found the meat. I found some beef, and but the milk was interesting because you couldn't buy it from her. So how how did you work that out? Well, she said that there was these other people who I cannot name, who had two cows, and they would be they sell milk to people off their back porch. So it's down a ruddy road, you know, and past an ugly dog and up into a sagging porch and into a little fridge in their porch, and they will put the milk in there for you. So you had to do it outside the system. That, yeah, knock that. three times and tell yeah. them Joe sent uh, it you. It <laughs> like
1: the old speakeasy days Exactly. prohibition, right? <laughs>
2: exactly. Yeah. And it was interesting because, uh, I mean, there's many stories in here, but one was that we had several large dairies on the island until – maybe a decade ago. And then the price of milk is held steady and the price of feed went up and it ruined the dairy industry in my area. So all those dairies are gone. And I asked a dairyman, I said, what's the problem with raw milk? And she said, oh, no, no, no. No, you can't drink it because it can disease and stuff like that. And then she said, as an aside, she said, but I drank raw milk while I was growing up and I think that's why I've been able to travel the world and never get sick. I thought, this is pretty interesting. So, our industrial milk, which I later found out one carton of milk could have milk from a thousand cows. It's like all centralized all put and together. then all put together and pasteurized. And it, it's somewhat flavorful. Uh, tastes, it, it tastes like milk. At least that's what we think milk is. Um, but this milk that I started drinking, this cow's milk, was so delicious. And the other thing I said, I said to a friend, I just miss butter. And she said, Don't you know you can make butter from the cream? And so I did this little experiment that all second graders apparently do, where you put the cream in a jar and you shake it for 10 minutes, and boom, there's a ball, there's of, butter. A ball of butter. We'll talk more about this in just a moment. I'm here with Vicki Robin. She's the author of
1: Blessing the Hands That Feed Us, What Eating Closer to Home Can Teach Us About Food, Community. And our place on Earth. And if you'd like to know more about our work, you can go to our website, VickiRobin.com. That's spelled V-I-C-K-I Robin R-O-B-I-N.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Vicki Robin. She's the author of Blessing the Hands that Feed Us. And by the way, she spells her name V-I-C-K-I-R-O-B-I-N, Vicki Robin. And her website is vickirobin.com. Or you can go to the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Vicki, we're talking about some of the challenges of finding what you need and finding what you crave <laughs> in within a 10-mile radius so in the first week probably went okay but as you got more into the second you're going to do this for a month did it stay okay did you were you
2: still up for the experiment were there any oh,
1: challenges oh
2: yes i mean number one i'm up for the experiment because if i say i'm doing it for 30 days i'm doing it for 30 days come H or high water yeah, i'm doing it and so i by the second week i had i was getting my my systems down and I was having to relearn to, how to cook. I mean, one challenge is, you know, there's no fast food.
1: <laughs> there's and, no and fast isn't, food. Isn't that one of the, the critiques is, oh, it takes too long to cook from
2: scratch? This is a critique, and it does take longer to, but, but. Uh, number one, I discovered that I actually didn't really have a variety of ways to cook that addressed a vegetable as a vegetable, like a turnip as a turnip, you know? And I discovered that roasting vegetables make brings out the sweetness and it's really delicious. And of course, I had my oil and salt. So I learned to do basic cooking skills that I either didn't know or had forgotten. So or, you really, it brought up new capacities. Absolutely. Uh, and it also, it also like gave me eyes like 360 degrees in my head looking for food. And part of it was that just desperate hunt for nuts or something up there. But another part of it became an experience of like really settling in my body as an animal, having a sense that I belong here. I live here on this planet. I'm a living being in a living world and that food isn't just in the store or in my controlled little garden bed. Food is all around. I mean, we live in food, we actually live in food and that uh, I am a being who belongs here and who can have sufficient food if I commit myself to this place on earth. So it's really taking myself off the drug of the industrial food system and putting myself on the local food system. So one challenge was getting up from a nap. I'll just say this, getting up from a nap in the afternoon and getting up from a nap in the afternoon is always chocolate covered almond. You know, these are all, like, there is no chocolate. All I had was a turnip, a leek, an (laughs) onion, and uh, I had been mowing a a weed in my backyard, which I discovered was oregano, so thank God for that. But I I thought, I need something. And so, boom, 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 I I peeled the turnip, I chopped the leek, I chopped the onion, sautéed them, and boiled the turnip, and put it in a blender with my oregano, and God, it was a really good soup. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah I want to ask
1: you like when you're when you're doing these vegetables and if you only have let's say salt really is your only real it's not a spice, but salt right. is a something
2: to add to it and you have oil, aren't they really, really bland then? We are surrounded by herbaceous plants. That's what herbs are. herbs are leaves, spices are usually bark or roots or something like that. Very interesting, just even discover that. I mean, it's like herbs and spices are not all the you know these. Well, they're just the little jars well, on of the course. urban spice. You know. They're on the they're on the shelf, and you look. They're in alphabetical order. <laughs> <laughs> but my, you know, so there's oregano that I'm 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 mowing in the backyard, and then my neighbor has a sprawling plant, which I realize is a, is rosemary, and my friend has an herb garden that has sage and thyme and marjoram in it, and suddenly I'm surrounded by flavor, and I realize. Every leaf has a distinctive signature, of flavor. It's like I came alive to flavors. Uh, And so, yeah, those were all sort of positive, interesting things. And the negative was... I couldn't travel outside my 10 miles. I had a meeting to go to 100 miles north, and I, I packed like a peasant, you know, going on a long train trip and a third-class train in the 1950s in some sort of, you know, Stalin-esque movie. <laughs> That's how it felt, this drear <laughs> right. process of trying to bring all my food with me. So there is a limitation, and there's also the missing of all the delights of the industrial food system and, and feeling distance from my social community, like, oh, I'd like to come to dinner, but I can't. You know?
1: Uh-huh. There's another challenge, because they would be buying food from outside that 10-mile I know. Mile they could is- have
2: 11-mile food. Who knows? Right. You
1: know, 12. So you were being pretty strict with yourself to stay within the 10-mile, but that also meant you had to innovate with being with other people if they invited you to dinner i mean you did you did go to
2: dinners didn't you yeah and i also what i realized was that i had become just in general the, whatever kind of food since i live alone now i i become sort of a lone eater and i cook for myself but i eat by myself and it was sort of like i sit down to the dinner table and like where are the people eating has always been a time of community. It's always been this bonding time of eating together. It's a very rare thing. And in your life you you've shared houses with other people. So you've been
1: you're very used to living in community and then now you're living alone and that's a very different kettle of fish. Yeah.
2: And say. so I became I actually uh decided that I'm going to be more social. I mean I call this relational eating because it's it's being in relationship with my psychology, with my addictions and demands, with my beliefs about what food is and isn't. You know, the sort of the non-tangible personal aspect of relational eating. But it's being in relationship with my kitchen and, and developing, again, the capacities to cook. It's being in relationship with my yard and realizing this could be, this is already, there's a ton of food here I don't recognize, but I could really make this into a paradise rather than a, lawn that's going to moss and it's a relationship with my neighborhood food system that I would call that the 10 mile food system
1: and Vicky in doing this you really get in touch with your emotional body what what how you are with food emotionally or psychologically i mean what there's a there's a lot of i i know
2: some of us have a real love hate Relationship with food? Well, I think it's crazy. When I I was realizing recently, as I reflect back on this, that in so many ways, because we have these ideas about this acculturated idea about what size our body should be, we read the magazines and we know it should be a a certain weight, a certain size. Oh, now we have to worry about our BMI. No, now we have to worry about our (laughs) PDQ. So food becomes the enemy. It's like, you don't know what to eat because there's always somebody in this world who's told you it's bad for you. That is a very bad relationship with food. And we think of our relationship with food as, well, you must have been eating too much because you're getting too fat. No, our relationship with food, a diet originally is how people ate in a place. A diet expresses a culture. Used to be we would go to France to experience French cuisine because it was an expression of the countryside. It was the terroir, you know, the grapes. It was, and and so, I realized in my region, we were the salmon people. There's somebody has even called my region the salmon nation, because the people focused their lives around salmon. Their rituals were around salmon. There were the yearly migrations of salmon of, of spawning upstream. So we have completely lost contact with a diet that's appropriate to place. Not that that's the right next right way to do it. Okay, everybody says, Vicki says, we should have a <laughs> place-based diet. Right. No, it's because it locates you somewhere. It's because it grounds you somewhere. And when you're grounded somewhere, you care about the place. And because you care about the place, suddenly you're engaged in placemaking in a way that's very different from people who come at it you know, from concept, getting a debris, and you know, community organizing or whatever. You care, and I think when people care about their place, they make different choices.
1: Now, I want to ask you. I know that earlier in your career, you lived in Wisconsin, uh, and and you did a uh, this. I don't know what, maybe the seventies. You did a back to the land sort of deal, and now here we are in in the twenty first century, and and you're doing this. 10 mile experiment what is the different
2: psychology of both of the right. different ecology of both of those experiments what a great question cuz really it, it, when we were doing the back to the land we were dropping out you know that was the period where we were dropping out of mainstream culture and doing all these social experiments in and and fairly young and inexperienced but i feel like like engaging basically in community food system, is, is dropping in. It's not just taking my life out of the community and out of the whole to live a life that's pleasant or appropriate to me, but it's it's throwing in my lot once again to the whole mess of community and recognizing that, as they say, no man is an island or woman is an island. You Sustainability is not an individual affair. And if there's anything that we're sort of myopic about, it's we come out of a hyper-individualistic culture. And so even things like spirituality, we do it in a hyper-individualistic way. It's my uh, ascension or my this or my that or my meditation practice. We don't think of it in a we way. We don't think of it in a community-based way that, If I become sustainable and my community isn't, guess what? My community's coming over to my yard and getting it, you know? If I become peaceful and my community isn't, then I'm not at peace. So this is, this really is the dropping in, the dropping down, the dropping, it's not dropping, it's like engaging, Engaging. settling into a real place. And it it was so interesting because I'd lived in community for so many years, you know, this intentional... Community, but for me, living in a community of place, you know, where there's all sorts of people. There's wealthy people and poor people. There's you know the 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 intelligent people and the townies and the this and the that and the knowledge workers and the Boeing workers and the fundamentalists and that's the module of change learn how to make change in a community of place, and you've learned something about this world. So it's it's the diversity of that,
1: learning to live within the diversity of that, and, and somehow you talk about being rooted in that place. I mean, it's such a great word, rooted. I mean, we're talking about eating and growing food, but there's a way that we can
2: root ourselves into a place, and it seems like that's what you're describing. That's the byproduct of what I was doing. I don't think I was trying to do that. I think I was just trying to test out whether you could live this value called local food. I was trying to test out if we on Whidbey Island needed to live within the bounds of the island, could we? I have a I have a real interest in relocalization. You know, everybody has their own narrative about the future. And my narrative about the future is that the the... Brittle industrial systems are not necessarily going to provide well for all of us into the far future. Well, they did promise us that they would alleviate hunger. Yes, and that hasn't happened. But they're still promising us. (laughs) (laughs) No, the Green Revolution was going to alleviate hunger, and it it didn't. And now the GMOs, you know, which I am not rabidly anti-GMO, but they're telling us what's happening is genetically modified Crops are actually becoming, there's pests that are becoming resistant to the pesticides. So all these technological, brilliant things, they may not persist in the far future. I'm here with Vicki Robin, and
1: she's the author of Blessing the Hands that Feed Us, What Eating Closer to Home Can Teach Us About Food, Community, and Our Place on Earth. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Vicki Robin. She's the author of Blessing the Hands That Feed Us. And if you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website. That's vickirobin.com. And she spells that V-I-C-K-I-R-O-B-I-N, vickirobin.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Vicki, I, I would love to talk about also something that really moved me in the book. You you talked about getting together in something called Food 2020. This was something that you did in, on Whidbey. This was before this experiment, I believe. No, no it was, it was after. after. Okay.
2: All right. So tell us about how that worked out. I h- helped organize. I had the idea for Food 2020. I brought together a group of people because I was working with this question of this little local experiment, I realized if 100 people on Whidbey Island did my experiment, we wouldn't have any food left. We, can, we are not organized around producing enough food to feed people 100% of their calories locally. And so I had the question what would it take for us to actually organize a food system that could produce 50% of the calories we need? And back then, I was thinking in terms of calories, I wasn't even thinking in terms of nourishment, I was thinking in terms of those calories per day, let's say 2,000 calories a day. How could we have 1,000 calories a day coming out of our local food system that would feed the entire population of Whidbey Island? So I called it Food 2020. We started in the beginning of 2011 on this project and we thought the end of 2020, could we be doing it? I brought together the farmers, a miracle of miracles. They came in May, which on a sunny day in May, which that's a growing day. Uh, people who buy food for the schools and for the hospitals, people who uh, work for the county extension, the 4-H, uh, eaters, of course, uh, and um, people who are involved in NGOs. So I tried to get as many of the players, uh, stakeholders in our food system together in a room And the first part of it, we did this imagination exercise. You know, it's 2020, wake up in the morning. What do you see? Where does food come from? What are you eating for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? When you want to go out, what's it like? You know, when you go to the store, where do you shop? and then we did some conversations where people identified you know they told each other stories about what it was like and we had people write ideas on post-its and then put them up on the board and group them you know the whole right, thing the organizational and, development yeah, sort of yeah uh, and so what came approach. out was a very clear shared picture of a balanced food system where there's a lot of local food, but there's also plenty of industrial food. It was the idea and that we, we recycle. they've invented Whidbey Island local compost. We recycle all of our waste. Uh, we invented a grain mill. We said, well, we want to have more grain. We want to have bread on Whidbey Island. So we need to have a, a mill so that we can mill our own flour and then more grain would grow. So the interesting thing is from this description, uh, which seems very positive, but not idealistic, you know, very balanced. So we had this idea of a grain mill. We just said it, you know, we, there's got to be a grain mill. <laughs> yes, and now we have a grain mill. Now, what's
1: interesting about this gathering together you you mentioned about this this community meeting, and so forth, that at some point, a lot of people just left they, that 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 there wasn't, you know, that people drifted out and maybe it just seemed like too too big a project. And and that really interested me because now you're saying you have a grain mill, but it didn't come about by some sort of organizational development. We do step one, step two. It came about in a more organic way. Can you d- describe that?
2: The interesting thing is I think that you see the imagination and a sense of possibility not just generally in the group, but individuals will see, each individual will see something else for themselves. You know, and some people decided, oh, well, I've been to meetings like this before, nothing happened. But the person who started the, it was interesting because a few people from that group organized to start a grain cooperative and buy a grain mill cooperatively. Well, you had seven people around the table, seven opinions, and none of them matched. So that didn't work but then along comes a baker who start who opens a bakery and they decide they want to have a grain mill so they bring the mill in so it's a circuitous path so you think it's going to
1: happen this way but it kind of comes in sideways from a very
2: different direction and isn't that interesting yeah and the other part of it was one of the uh, several of the interest groups we had three interest groups one was to do a food policy council which is a you know community organization that looks at the food system. Another one was to to form some sort of farmer cooperative, and a third was to develop financial resources to help farmers buy equipment and get land. And um, so very small groups. You know there was no official meetings, but we now have Whidbey Island local lending, and some of us who are in the lending organization are lending to farmers. So for me, I, I loan money to one of our farmers for to put up a greenhouse, a hoop house. And uh, I'm taking my interest on the loan in vegetables, and she's paying it off religiously. So I have a lot of vegetables, and I also am getting my money back. So I become a revolving loan fund. So we have Whidbey on local lending now. We don't have Whidbey on local compost yet. Um, and we have the grain mill. Uh, so... And we're also developing this idea of, it's called an everyday local food store. This idea that that one of the reasons that local food isn't more prevalent is you can't get it in the supermarkets. It doesn't match with the industrial system. And the farmer's markets are only a few hours on the weekend. We also have this idea of an ELF, everyday local food store, uh, where you can buy local food any day of the week. And it's evolved into the idea of an everyday local food stand. And we're working with a grocer and also a restaurant to have a farm stand outside of the grocery store that's run cooperatively by farmers. So for me, I'm a little bit, you know, I can see the whole thing happening in a grain, but I can see that this is starting the farmers cooperative. Well, the the
1: point... Of this, that really grabbed my attention is that I understand everything is born twice. And first it's born in our imagination, and then it's born out into the world. And so, what you're describing, all of these things that came out later, really were the seeds were first there from the imagination. People started imagining it, even though they didn't see a direct route to how to manifest it. It it
2: first came out of the imagination. Has that been your experience? I think it's more complex than that. Yes. Yes, it came out of imagination. But it's also, I'm sure that there were plenty of people before me who did their food 2020 or their this or that or the other thing. You know, there's been other good Good intention people come through. So I think it's an iterative process, also. It's community change is improvisational multidimensional, sort of amoebic. (laughs) Yes. It it happens that way. And so ideas might be floating around. It wasn't that I initiated anything. I just brought the community together in that moment in time. And things that were latent in the field, both failures and successes and dreams and, and cynicism and the loss of our dairy industry, all of that was there in that moment. And we imagined things. And there's been plenty more. I really don't want to say. So it was building on on a
1: foundation of a lot of complexities.
2: Totally. And it's sort of, you know, that was one event, but there was another group that looked at our farming community and for a year or so they had enough funding through the Washington State University to have sort of an ombudsperson. There was another organization that's interested in the the. Uh, sustainability uh and, and success financial success of the farming community. They had somebody on Whidbey Island for a while, lost their funding. So you know there's been people all along and I feel like I am part of a long process. I, I just don't want to claim exactly. too much from that no, one event. No, I,
1: I I wasn't actually thinking that you you were the one, but but in in all of that what I hear is it was important to know your resources. Mm-hmm. So, can you say something about that? I mean, know the, the all those different people who had all yes. these different capacities
2: that could come together or, or help. That's bring- another thing about a community of place. You know, when when you're when you're organizing, or your activism is arising out of a real place with real people. You come into some place, and I've watched this, I watched it in myself, I've watched it in other people who come to my island community, big deal people with their big ideas, and they think, I'm going to make change here. You know, there's trouble in River City. (laughs) And, And you have to settle in. You have to not just understand the lay of the land. You have to feel the lay of the land. You have to know some of the history of things that have been tried. Not to suppress yourself, but to understand how to work with this living being called a community, and you develop relationships. Absolutely, yeah. So I, you know, from developing a relationship with the woman who ran the 4-H, then she had relationship with somebody else, and so we all had relationships. It's a and network. a woman who would worked on on we'd be on local brand. Uh, that had been worked on for a while people declared it a failure but it's not a failure because now it's flourishing but it was a fa- you know it was like that first experiment that needed a little bit more to it yeah so i started to network and find the people who could share this vision so tell me what do you you say something about the 50 50 50 50 experiment so what does that mean so people said to me in september they said oh that's easy to do it you know it's september well, you try doing it in the winter and I thought try doing it in September and talk to me. But <laughs> I decided, you know, anybody who double dares me on anything, I'm gonna I'm gonna they're not gonna make me do anything, but it seeds my own imagination. So I decided to do fifty percent of my food within fifty miles in February, which is alliterative and also February has three less days. So just in case I wasn't enjoying it. <laughs> I- <laughs> you hedge yourself by three days, but huh? it was like that was no-brainer. I had grain, I had beans, I got all the way, my little 50-mile string got me all the way out to one of the most productive local farms uh, in, in my region, Nash's. And they had, you know, grain and flour and I mean everything—bread and crackers. crackers. So that was really no problem at all to do that experiment. I started to document. I blogged every day for my ten mile diet, and I started to blog for the fifty mile. I thought, this is not interesting anymore. This is just how I eat now. That's that's a wonderful. That's
1: just wonderful. And what about? um, Let's talk a little bit about industrial farming and or agriculture and corporate agriculture what are some of the hidden costs that we don't realize that are
2: going on with that oh my well number 1 is farm worker injustice it's you know you have major industrial scale agriculture whether it's organic or not uh, and and there's an insistence in the United States that our food is cheap Uh, And there's a lot of theory about why Americans must have cheap food. But we spend the lowest percentage of our budget on food of any country in the world. And we still think food is expensive. And we'll drive around with coupons in our pockets for various stores. Some people need to do the couponing. But we don't compute that our food is cheap because somebody's not getting paid a living wage over someplace. So one of the hidden things is the quality of life of the workers. Let's talk about more of that
1: in just one moment. I'm here with Vicki Robin. She's the author of Blessing the Hands That Feed Us, What Eating Closer to Home Can Tell Us, Teach Us About Food, Community, and Our Place on Earth. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Vicki Robin, and we're talking about eating locally and what that might do for our health and also for our our social well-being and for the land itself. In this whole movement towards sustainability, and especially in, in farming and the way we eat, do you think it can be compared to what? has happened with complementary medicine. Mm. Can you say something about that?
2: Yeah, I think that uh, it's a good analogy because we've watched that happen, and you and I have been around long enough that we've actually watched it happen. And where basically alternative practices, whether it's Chinese medicine or acupuncture, it was quackery, then it was alternative Then enough research was done to prove that there were good outcomes, that rather than the allopathic medical system saying, oh, we made a mistake. No, no, no. No, it's just a different kind of practice. It's complementary medicine. So we have conventional medicine and complementary medicine, and we use both strategies. And now it's being actually you can get chiropractic, you can get acupuncture, many with, you know, sickness care insurance plans. I don't call it health care because healthcare is your body and your nutrition. Uh, so just like that, you know, 20, 30 years ago, organic meant wormy apples. <laughs> That's what it meant. <laughs> yeah. Ugly, wormy, distorted fruits that you didn't dare bite into because you didn't know if they were in, you know, manure or whatever. You know, it was, it, and it was like like ratty farmers. You know, it, it was just had this ratty, unsafe, unclean reputation. Well, the organic industry got its act more and more together, producing beautiful food, has beautiful organic standards now that they're defending to the hilt. And so now organic food is a growing sector in the marketplaces. It doesn't occupy a very big portion yet comparatively but organics have gone from alternative ugly to, yeah. to included in, in an appropriate diet and it's actually even more and more now. And so I think that this is how this is how I imagine the community food systems or regional food systems. One of the things that I became aware of was it's not just local food, it's a local food system. And the system has a lot to do with the capacity to process food, not just be a dirt farmer and bring your potatoes to the farmer's market, perfectly fine, love those potatoes. But if you can convert those potatoes into potato chips, you you actually get more profit off of your farm than if you just sell the potatoes. So processing is a very important part of just like our grain mill is processing the wheat berries. However, we have to look at the legalities
1: of all of that and the certification that we need. And so you you also talk
2: about that, how we need to to have what I call scale-appropriate regulations. And I honestly, I don't know if I made that term up or if I just picked it up from the zeitgeist. It probably is in all the textbooks, and I just didn't read it. But it means that you've got to lift off the shoulders of the local food systems the burden of the licensing and regulation that's appropriate to an industrial system where people don't think about their suppliers. They just want to be able to get go to the store and you know buy a bunch of food and take it home for dinner but people who are relational eaters who can actually go and look in the eye of their farmer who can look at who could go to the milking parlor and look at the milk happening we look need at to, the cow look we, at the cow in the
1: eye yeah
2: yeah so we need to i mean it doesn't romanticize it it just says you have there's a community standards rather than the industrial standards and the community can run that and then the um the burden of the licensing and regulations, like the milking parlor for one of our goat dairies that actually does pasteurize the milk and make goat cheese, that dairy, they had to put it in a wheelchair accessible bathroom because that's a requirement, but it's just her and her husband in a goat barn. So I'm saying that that's what adds, these are some of the things that add to the cost of local food, that's an unnecessary burden because it doesn't add layers of protection. For example, Uh, Butchering an animal. You can, you know, if your neighbor has a steer, you can buy a quarter of that animal, but you can't buy cuts of that animal unless that animal is taken off the island, in my case, to a slaughterhouse that's USDA approved. Nothing wrong with that. We need safe food. You know, 100 years ago, people got sick from meat. But we we need to be able to have a community food system. Hopefully we would have, and there are people on my island now who are looking at this, being able to have animal processing um, places where you can actually get cuts of meat that don't have the added cost on it of the USDA inspection, which may or may not add to the safety of the meat. I'm nothing against the USDA. It just if you could have a community food systems that do that, then you could have better priced or more competitive local foods. There's a story that you have in your book that, that
1: really popped for me, and I've repeated it several times because I feel it's so important to to look at how we can make change incrementally and it really fans out to be mm-hmm. quite big. And and it's a story from Paul Krapfel, who um, is a naturalist. And he got stuck in a cave
2: sometime during a rainstorm. Do you recall that story? Yeah. So he got stuck in a cave. And this is, I'm retelling the story. Maybe I'm getting it a bit wrong. But because he was stuck there, he watched the water come down. And when it hit the the sand that was the edge of the cave, the mouth of the cave, he watched the rivulets go, you know, how, how the water rivulets out, you know, like we watch it on the wind, windshield. And so he just got to playing around and he noticed that if you move just a few grains of sand here rather than there, it affects the whole downstream pattern of the water flow. So he applied that later to healing actually a, a, um, a damaged, a vacant lot in the city of Los Angeles. And instead of bringing a bulldozer and bringing in sod and bringing in all the things that you would industrially, he he went upstream and he saw where is the beginning of this damage to this land and started to just do micro changes that actually changed the flow of water. And in changing the flow of water, little pockets developed where grass could grow. And eventually, slowly, he healed this lot. And so it's a story I tell about, you know, how change happens if you can go upstream not in a I am going to control the system way, but that I'm going to observe the system, how energy is flowing. This is definitely a permaculture idea. Uh, How is energy flowing in the system, whether it's water or sun um, or wind, you know, understanding all those forces and then designing your relationship, designing your uh, interventions in that system in such a way that it it increases the beneficial flows. So you can actually heal land, you can heal communities, but you do it not frontally, you do it by watching where energy is going and what are these little tiny interventions that might make it healthier. So does this give you hope for the future, mm. Vicki? It's a great question because I really, when I worked on ending overconsumption in North America through your money, your life. I really hoped. I presumed that if I worked really hard, we would have the outcome we needed. And so I worked like a demon for the 1990s, and by the year 2000, we thought we were going to handle this situation. We hadn't. So I had a sense of despair, like there's nothing I can do that's going to make a difference, so where does hope come from? And, and slowly over time, what I've realized is number one, Um, even though the data I've been paying attention to about overshooting ecological footprint, even though all this data is actually correct, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not the whole story, that there are other things that are foot in this world. I'm not saying, you know, just pray to Allah or whatever, you know, (laughs) pray to God and it's all going to work out. But there are things that are foot in this world that are beyond my ken and control. And so I can have a certain amount of faith that that's at work too. It's also true that even though the data points in a certain direction, I actually don't know what's gonna happen an hour from now. So how can I be so certain that hope should collapse because I don't know? And then the other part of it is I've worked with a lot of young people and they've asked me stories because I'm, you know, I'm I'm getting on to 70. And I found myself so, my despair was oozing out of cynicism or skepticism. Yeah, go ahead, try that. We tried it and it's not gonna work. And then that made me realize that hope actually is a responsibility. We need to create hope. Hope is the space into which we create an expectancy. It's a sense of expectancy. It's not hope for outcome, it's hope that we will be met with a nour- nourishing environment into which to express ourselves. People who are hopeless don't have that sense. And when you look at that, life always hopes. The seed is imbued with hope, life always gets up in the morning and has at it again. And that's really what's hopeful to me is working with the forces of life rather than against the forces of collapse. And and there's a kind of resilience that's, 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 that's
1: the ground
2: that. That's the definition of, that. of the word resilience, really, is the capacity to roll with the punches, to improvise, to understand, to try and experiment and then go with whatever the next possibility is. That's resilience and resourcefulness. there's some resourcefulness. trust in there too. Yeah, exactly. I, it's knowing that I don't have to work against something. I can work with something. And that's what gives me uh, nourishment. <laughs>
1: That's great. That's great, Vicky. Thank you so much. I want to thank you so much for being with us on New Dimensions. Well thank you for having me, Justine. It is wonderful. It's my pleasure to have you. I've been speaking with Vicki Robin and she's the author of Blessing the Hands That Feed Us, What Eating Closer to Home Can Teach Us About Food, Community, and Our Place on Earth. And she is also the co author of Your Money or Your Life. So if you'd like to be in touch with Vicky's work and know about her schedule, you can go to her website, VickiRobin.com. That's spelled V I C K I Robin, R O B I N.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3494.
0: New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts, and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine willis toms Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.